Hi, this is Allison Sheridan with the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 29th, 2021, and this is show number 851. Well, we just had a glorious weekend playing with our grandchildren, made possible by Alistair Jenks and Jill from the Northwoods. Back when we went to Montana for a week and I asked for contributions, Alistair actually created three blog posts and three audio recordings for us, and I've been saving the last and longest one for a week when I needed help. Joe from the Northwoods accepted a special assignment for me to test out a new capability that Apple has created for Windows users. I've got a couple of articles of my own in here, so we should have a grand show. On this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond, I've got Bodie Grimm on the show. Along with being a podcaster who specializes in the news about electric vehicles, on his show, The Kilowatt Podcast, Bodie is also a firefighter and engineer on a ladder truck. He's in a unique position to answer some of my questions about fires in internal combustion vehicles versus fires in electric vehicles. We also talked about the new investigation by the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration into 11 reported accidents where Teslas ran into emergency vehicles. Bodie is super knowledgeable about electric vehicles and fires, and uh, so it's really relevant to our whole conversation. And I got to tell you, he's an awful lot of fun. I had a blast recording this episode with him, and you can find this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. Well, Alistair's been waiting a long time to tell us this story, so let's get started with Alistair Jenks. Back in March, I took part in Chit Chat Across the Pond Light 675 about working from home, along with Alison and the pod daughter, Lindsay Tondi. We had so much fun discussing our different experiences that there was a whole section of content I had notes for that we just didn't have time to get into. I'd like to cover that now. The topic is non-real-time communication. I think I mentioned in Chit Chat Across the Pond that one of my driving forces for the way I work is being lazy at heart. If I can save people having to bother me, I'll put in the work ahead of time to ensure it is so. Occasionally, I have the opportunity to teach, which is something I really enjoy, but more often there is simply not time, or sometimes no inclination, to properly teach a topic. At these times, I turn to the next best thing, documentation. I used to have an attitude common amongst technical staff. I can either document it or do it. Two events happened that turned me away from that way of thinking, and they happened in the same job and a couple of years apart. It was 1998 and I was working for a large multinational company with my chief focus at the time being the introduction of a new software tool into our development team. When I say it was my focus, I mean it was my responsibility. I and my team had put a lot of work into figuring out configurations, extra tooling, processes and more, and we were piloting the results with one project within the development team. Things were moving fast, things were breaking. Despite some initial training, developers and testers alike had lots of questions. We noticed the same questions being asked over and over, so we started writing an FAQ. This had a positive effect, but still people would turn up at our desks, FAQ in hand, seeking clarification or the answer to something not in the FAQ. We constantly refined that FAQ to address more and more of what people were struggling with. It started getting big, but it was working. Or was it? One day, just after a developer had left my colleague's desk, FAQ in hand, he turned to me and asked, did you see that? 
My puzzled look prompted him to expand. His FAQ was a really old version. We'd built our FAQ in Microsoft Word and we'd made sure to put the date of the last update clearly on the document. But the nature of such documents is that they get passed around from person to person and worse, printed. Not getting the document from source is a problem, but printed documents are worse. They're quick to reference, but are out of date as soon as the toner hits the paper. It didn't matter that the date was there on the front page, because the front page was folded behind the rest as it sat on all those desks. Our constant work to revise and expand the FAQ was somewhat in vain. We needed to address this problem, for the benefit of the development staff, but also for our own sanity. The company had recently rolled out Lotus Notes, and we realised it would solve the problem. We built a notes database which was a simple, categorised list of questions. When the user clicked on a question, the answer would be revealed. We had essentially the same capabilities as Word, including screenshots and marking up standard terms, code, commands and more to aid legibility. We quickly converted the contents of the Word document into the database, and then went around everyone's desks, confiscating their printed copies as we explained the new tool and showed them how to use it. Our support burden went down literally overnight. Everyone had easy access to the latest information with a few clicks. This lesson didn't really sink in for me until the next event occurred two years later. I had been a self-employed contractor at the company for four years, but management was souring on this long-term contracting concept and I was tipped off one day that my own job had been posted on the company job board as a vacancy. I applied and, astonishingly, I got the job. My job. I was now a permanent employee. Not much changed on a day-to-day basis, but there were certain requirements as an employee, one of which is that I have my personal business commitments formalised and on record. Anyone who worked at the same company is now sure they know who I worked for. I sat down with my boss, who I knew well, to discuss these and I cheekily offered this appraisal. Let me guess, my commitments are your commitments and yours are your bosses and theirs are their bosses and so on, and none of it means much except do what you're told. Without a flicker of emotion he replied, essentially yes, but I'm adding an extra one just for you. His new commitment for me was very simply expressed. Reduce the team's reliance on you being here. I was by that point the senior member in my team, mostly through attrition, and had recently been overseas for several weeks at a time, working at other company sites. I asked how he thought I was going to achieve that, and his reply was equally simple. I don't know, but you'll have to work something out. Spoiler alert, I did. It didn't take me long to figure out that our pilot FAQ held the answer. Not literally, but in its very existence. What if we had a team FAQ as well? A place where the whole team could distill their knowledge in such a way that it became every other team member's knowledge as required. The pilot FAQ had since become a production FAQ as we had rolled out the database to everyone, and it had grown a lot. As such, I found it a bit unwieldy, so I set about building the team FAQ a little differently. I discovered, with a little tinkering, that a Lotus Notes database could act like a website. I built out a front page with links to a series of categories, each of those being a page of its own and each containing links to further pages with the actual content. The real power came in those content pages where further links could be included to related pages. From this I developed a simple approach to writing documentation most efficiently, 
that is, efficient to write and efficient to use. These were my rules. Never write anything in more than one place. If you had to do a process A before process B, then the process B page should mention this fact and contain a link to the process A page and not a duplication of the same steps, no matter how simple process A was. This meant if process A ever changed, it only needed to be updated in one place. For simpler processes that are used in a lot of places, this saves an enormous maintenance burden. Write for the correct audience. While our project FAQ had addressed an audience of developers and testers, our own team database, which we called the team knowledge base, could be a lot more technical at the operating system level and could assume certain knowledge that developers and testers would not have. Writing for the correct audience is most efficient. Use numbered steps for processes, but not only numbered steps. Numbered steps are incredibly useful for following an unfamiliar or complex process, but those steps should not be a simple sentence or command. They should spell out exactly what to do, and they should follow the next rule. Always explain why. Have you ever tried to follow a process only to find out partway through that something it said would happen didn't happen, and now you're stuck? I have, and it can be infuriating. If the process explains at each step why you should do what it says, then you have a fighting chance to work out what is different and proceed with the rest of the process. Test the process. A process is only of any value if it works, and that means it needs testing. You can run through the process yourself, but the ultimate test is to get someone else to do it, preferably someone who doesn't know much about the topic. There was one memorable process in our knowledge base which showed the power of testing. One member of my team had developed a very complex process which no one else in the team had any idea how to do, including me. I pressed him to write up a process but he was extremely busy. I eventually got a rudimentary process out of him and then asked a whole bunch of questions. From this I wrote up what I thought was a proper version of the process. On my first test I failed dismally. More questions ensued until I finally thought I had a handle on it and I updated the process to what I thought must be near complete. I then handed it to another team member and asked them to have a go. More questions, more updates and they got through the process. Then I handed it to yet another team member. There were seven members in my team including me, so that's five people not originally involved in writing up the process. I gave it to every single one of them to run through a real task, and the fifth and final person gave me back the printed copy I had given them, there was no access to the electronic version where it needed to be used, with a single markup in red pen where something I had said would appear was not shown correctly. And the final rule, if you see an error, correct it. Updating the process during the testing phase is vitally important, but that should not be the end of updates. Processes, tools, requirements and more all change over time. Sometimes even the most comprehensive testing can still miss things. The final rule is what stops the knowledge from becoming obsolete. It's also the rule that keeps people using the resource. It doesn't take long for someone who keeps finding the information wanting to stop using it altogether. Conversely, I have found that keeping things fresh not only ensures consistent use of the resource, it also encourages others to make their own updates when they see issues. There is one other thing I didn't make a rule, but which is definitely worth considering. A common phrase is, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. 
the example I described above was certainly the only process in our knowledge base that got that level of testing. Some processes weren't everything they could be, but they all worked. There is also a saying, something is better than nothing. There is value in a knowledge dump where someone quickly pastes in some notes with the intention of later fleshing it out to something more useful. Everything I have described has focused on processes, but there is another class of information which should sit right alongside these. The team knowledge base I built formalised these two types as process and reference pages. Reference pages did not describe how to do a task, but rather how a particular tool or technology worked, how it was configured in our business, or a list of tips and techniques. These reference pages were often linked to from process pages and vice versa. This was a big help with the why rule in process pages, and when looking at a how it works reference page, you could quickly go to related processes to see how it was used. A year after that sit down with my boss, he agreed I had achieved my objective. I had absolutely reduced my team's reliance on me being there, and this was illustrated perfectly with another overseas trip I did a few months later. Upon my return, I asked one of my team members, my official stand-in while I was away, how things had been in the three weeks I was gone. His response was, all fine, but we weren't sure about this. They had kept one single issue for me to address when I returned, and it wasn't anything urgent or terribly important. I have since built, deployed and championed knowledge bases in two subsequent roles and my team today is fully on board with what we call our wiki. Though originally built with wiki software it now resides in Microsoft OneNote which, like Lotus Notes, allows a locally stored and regularly synced copy. It also has a very useful feature in that it highlights pages that have changed since you last visited them. This enables me to see just how many updates my colleagues are making. It's sometimes hard to keep up. The real value in our wiki is realised when a team member who is on call gets roused at 2am on a Sunday for an issue and effectively has the entire team's expertise on hand to help resolve it. Often during work hours, one of us will utter the phrase, put it in the wiki, when something is discovered that isn't already covered, and every time it appears there in short order. I have come across people during my career who think this free giving of knowledge is a bad thing. They believe that holding the knowledge makes them indispensable. I have also seen that this is simply not true. When it comes to downsizing, right-sizing, restructures, or whatever you want to call it, held knowledge doesn't seem to be a huge factor. Instead, people who have experience are valued more if they willingly share it. Despite my earlier comment about laziness, it can actually be hard work to create good documentation, but I believe that sharing information gives everyone the best outcomes. Information you impart freely will unburden you from being the expert all the time, and if everyone pitches in, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. This is fantastic, Alistair. I love everything about this. I, I'm a big fan of doing documentation myself, and um, you know, you talk about somebody right at the end there. You talk about people who think free giving of knowledge is a bad thing. Um, I remember I had a guy working for me who um, uh, knew a foreign language. English was not his native language. And so he purposely would put the comments in his code in his foreign language so that no one else would ever be able to take over for him. 
he turned out to be wrong. He was not very good at what he did, and they, he stopped working for us after a while. So giving a free knowledge was something that I always tried to positively reinforce in my uh, my organization. And it's too bad everybody isn't great at it. And it's really interesting to me that you were able to get so many people to continue to contribute to it and uh, and keep that knowledge really lively. So that's, that's really cool. I love this story. Thanks for doing it, Alistair, and letting me have some fun with the grandkids by doing it. A couple of weeks ago, Nightwise told us about a fantastic open-source cross-platform notebook app called Joplin. After he told us about it, I raved about it as well. This week, I asked Bart whether he thought he might be it might be the right app for him to replace Evernote, and he said, well, I'm waiting for you to tell me more about it, including, you know, how does it organize notes? When he said that, I realized I had more, to work, more work to do here. The description of Joplin was from the 30,000-foot view. We talked about how it was open source, how cool it is you can sync through any server you want, including one of your own, and how it runs on every platform, including the command line. But we didn't describe it. So let's rectify that, shall we? Joplin has two distinctly different interfaces. The desktop version, which is built on Electron, is very full-featured. The mobile version is much more limited, but it's still quite capable. I think I mentioned last time that Joplin doesn't take full advantage of the huge screen on the iPad Pro, which is kind of a shame. Because this is an open source project, you can make suggestions in the forum for Joplin, which I actually did on this very subject. I'm going to start by describing the desktop interface, and then I'm going to go into the mobile interface. So on the desktop, you have a three or four column view, depending on your settings. The left column shows you your notebooks represented by little folder icons. You can add subfolders, and they're shown with a downward chevron, and the folders show the number of items in each folder. When you select a notebook, the second column will show the notes and to-dos in that notebook, so it's kind of a very standard interface. The last column is where you actually write your notes. Joplin uses a version of Markdown, which allows you to create beautiful headings, italics, bold lists, and more. It's super easy to learn. Bart tried for years to convince me that Markdown is awesome, and while I'm still annoyed by some of its limitations, I have to admit it's still pretty cool. Joplin is more than a Markdown editor, though. It's actually a rich text editor that you write in in Markdown, because you can mix and match Markdown with embedded images and other document formats. Now, I don't want to do a full Markdown lesson, but for context, let me just give a few examples of how Markdown formatting works. When you're writing in Markdown, you use asterisks for bulleted lists. Underscores on either side of a word make it italics, and hash symbols make headings. This makes Markdown pretty easy to read, unlike writing in HTML, and the rendered version is beautiful. I said that Joplin has three or four columns. The option of the fourth column is whether you want to view just your Markdown, just your rendered view, or whether you'd like to see both side by side. If you want a more focused writing experience, you can toggle off the sidebar and the notes viewer, giving you just your writing area with just the markdown or the markdown and the rendered view. Now, if you're not a markdown wizard, the desktop app gives you some standard icons to format as bold and italics and add links, code bullets, checkboxes, headings, and more. So you can use those little icons and it'll insert it for you. If you have an editor you really like, at any time you can right-click on a note and open it in that favorite editor. I think that's really cool. When you close the file in the external editor, without having to save, the note is then updated in Joplin. Like I said, I thought that was pretty slick. Now, if you like the Markdown editor built into Joplin, you're going to go bananas when you see the options available to tailor that experience. In Preferences Markdown, you'll find a list of around 20 installed plugins that will enhance its standard capabilities. 
I'm definitely not going to go through them all here, but one really weird one caught my eye. The plugin says, enable mermaid diagram support. Well, hang on now. I certainly want mermaid in my notes, don't you? You know, I love a good diagramming application, so I had to investigate what mermaid diagrams were. Turns out Mermaid is an open source diagramming project where you create diagrams using a normal text editor rather than in a GUI where you draw boxes and lines. Creating diagrams with a text editor sounds weird, but so did Markdown when I first heard about it. An example of the syntax for Mermaid is if you write A dash dash greater than symbol B semicolon, you get a rectangular box with an A in it, followed by a box with a B in it, and an arrow going between them. If you take out the greater than symbol, it's just a straight line with no arrow. With Mermaid, you can create flowcharts, sequence diagrams, class diagrams, Gantt charts, pie charts, and more. I learned just enough to be impressed and amazed that Mermaid even exists, then practiced a little bit inside Joplin and learned that this is too nerdy even for me. I still think it's really amazing. Now, the option to enable Mermaid diagrams is controlled by the desktop app. But once you enable it, the feature is available across all of your mobile devices as well. Let's switch gears to talking about the mobile version of Joplin. Instead of seeing three or four columns at once, the interface kind of slides in and out so you can't see all of the columns at once. For example, if you're in a notebook, you'll see the list of notes and to-dos inside the notebook. But as soon as you select a note, it will take over the entire screen. You can only view the markdown or the rendered view, but not both side by side. Now that makes perfect sense on a phone screen, but I think with a big girl tablet like the iPad Pro, Joplin could easily show us both panes at the same time. Now it's a little weird to go back and forth between the markdown and rendered view on the mobile version. If you're in the rendered view, in the bottom right there's a red circle with a little paper and pencil inside, indicating if you click that you can edit the note. It totally works. When you tap that icon, you're in the markdown editor mode. But to get back to the rendered version, there's no corresponding icon. There is a three-dot menu in the upper right and a downward arrow icon up there too, but neither take you back to the rendered view. In the upper left, you'll see the name of the notebook you're in and a back left arrow. Strangely, it's that back left arrow that gets you back to the rendered view. I say strangely because once you're in the rendered view, that same exact arrow takes you to the list of notebooks. I think it's a really strange UI decision, but once you know how it works, it's not that bad. The mobile app doesn't display the icons for bold and italics and list items like the desktop app does, so you will have to rely on your memory of how to format with Markdown if you rely mostly on mobile. Now let's talk about to-dos, because I, I mentioned just briefly there that Joplin does let you create to-dos. You can create these to-dos within the same notebook where you put your notes. It might work for some people, but seeing a mixture of to-dos and notes in a list of things inside a notebook looks like a hot mess to me. If I start using to-dos in Joplin, I'll probably make separate notebooks for the to-dos within a project. When you create a to-do, it looks pretty much like a regular note, except it has a circle you can click to show you've completed it, and then it gets a strike through in the notes list to designate completion. You can also add an alarm to a to-do, so they work really well with reminders, triggering macOS's notifications when a to-do is due. Boy, it's hard to say to-do is due. <laughs> anyway, I don't see a way to add those alarms in the mobile version, though. It's just on the desktop. 
Within your to-do, you have free-form text, but it's easy to create subtasks because Markdown can create those natively. There's a format, it's a dash space and then an open and close square bracket. And then you put your list item, whatever it is you wanna get done. In Joplin, this creates the same little circles in the rendered view and you can check them off in the rendered view. Near as I can tell, that's the only interaction you can do in the rendered view is check off your little subtasks. When you check them off, the markdown gets a little X between the square brackets. Since the to-do really is a freeform text area, you can write just like in a normal note, including adding in external documents and things like images. I really like having this much flexibility in a to-do. You'll remember that Bart asked me what options Joplin has for organization. I've already explained the folder structure, but Joplin also supports tagging. This allows you to have a single note tagged for discoverability in different contexts. While one note can only be in one notebook, it can have multiple tags. I read in the forums that people really want to be able to use Boolean searches for tags, you know, such as photography and trains, but it doesn't appear that's been implemented yet. Search works really well to find notes in their content or titles. Tag searches baffled me for a bit until I finally figured out that to search for notes with a given tag, you proceed the search with tag colon and then the tag name. Now, I mentioned that you can create notebooks within notebooks, so I got kind of curious, how many levels deep can you go with Joplin? You can create sub-notebooks 10 levels deep, but when you try to add one more, it puts the 11th one parallel up at the top level, so it suddenly jumps up to parallel to your first notebook. However, I think this might just be a bug in the UI because I deleted my top-level notebook that had the nine sub-notebooks and that 11th one disappeared as well. So I think it still is a sub-notebook, but it just doesn't look like it. Notes can be sorted by their creation date or their update date or by their title. You can also create a custom sort in the desktop app by dragging your notes up and down within a notebook. Now you can't create custom sorts in the mobile app, but you can use a custom sort that you created earlier on the desktop. Notebooks themselves don't have as many sort options. You get sort by title and updated date. I'm not sure if more options are desirable as, I don't know, that would be enough for me. Now Joplin lets you create links between notes. You select a note, right click on the title and choose copy markdown link. Then you can embed that link into any other note for quick access. People in the forums describe using this technique to, to create their own index of notes on a topic. I think links to notes would uh, to other notes would be a really useful thing to do in a to-do item as well. I normally end up typing a lot of info into a to-do, so I remember why I'm doing it, but if I could just link to a note I'd already written on the topic, that would be way simpler. Now, Joplin notebooks and notes sync across all your devices at a specific interval. The most often you can have it sync automatically is every five minutes, but you can always hit the sync button to make it go on demand. Now, don't forget that an advantage of Joplin is you get to choose your own sync service. I've been using Dropbox and I have not had any trouble with syncing. In Droplin, you can drag in images, videos, audio files, PDFs, pretty much anything you want to attach. In the synchronization settings, you can choose whether and how to download attachments to your notes. I set mine to always while I've been testing it, but if you have a giant set of notes with lots of attachments, it might make more sense to set it to manual so you can get them on demand when you click on an attachment. There's a third option called auto, and that means attachments are only downloaded when you open a note. I think it's really cool they've got all that flexibility. Now, one of the great joys of open source projects is when the developer creates an API. That's an application programmable interface that allows other people to write plugins for their app to extend the capability of the application. 
In Joplin Preferences on the desktop, there's a link to a GitHub repo with like 30 or 40 plugins for Joplin. A few examples include turning ABC text notation into sheet music, embedding a list of links specified by search inside of a note, exporting a collection of notes to a static site generator, and one that allows you to create favorite notes. Now, if you've been listening to Programming by Stealth, you'll know what a static site generator is. There's one that will add a powerful calculator and one that will run calculations on your tables in Markdown. If you want Joplin to be skinned to look more like a native Mac app, there's a theme plugin to do just that. I think it's really worth taking a look at all of these third-party plugins to see if there's something that would make Joplin even more useful to you. Now, one thing people might be asking is how the notes are stored. One of the reasons I like Keep It from Reinvented Software is that every note is just a file in the finder. I can right-click on any one of them and choose Show in Finder and get right to it. Joplin is more like other traditional notebook apps with everything stored in an SQLite database. I'm not a database person, so that makes it a little bit opaque to me, but I did read in the forums about someone who accidentally deleted a notebook and emptied the trash, but was able to retrieve it from a backup using SQLite. For my personal needs, a good export method is probably just as good as Show and Finder. Luckily, Joplin has quite a few options on the export front. You can export notes to a Joplin export file or directory. You can export to Markdown. You can export to an HTML file or directory. And you can export to PDF. Exporting a notebook to a Joplin directory works, but I believe the option is most useful for importing back into another Joplin installation. The Joplin directory export format exports all of the notes in their native Markdown format, but the title of each note is this long string of numbers and letters rather than the name of the note itself. Now, if you export a single note as Markdown, the title is preserved. You may remember in my initial few words about Joplin that I said it's really a rich text editor because you can embed images, audio, video, and PDFs and other file formats. Because of this, when you export a note as a Markdown file, you'll also get a resources folder where those attachments will be exported and linked to from within your Markdown document. You get that resources folder whether or not you had any embedded content. You can select more than one note at a time and choose export, but I think there's a bug on this. Instead of revealing a finder window with save or cancel, it shows open instead in the finder window. And hitting that, that open button does nothing at all to export your multiple notes. I may report this as a bug to the project, but you know what? Reporting bugs is a pretty heavy lift with Joplin. This week, I wrote up an outline for a presentation I was working on using Joplin. I realized when I was finished that I needed a way to move that outline over to a second clean user account I use for my presentations. My notebooks in Joplin would not be available to me from that other account, so I decided to simply export the uh, document I'd created as a PDF, and I could just view it from the other account. Now, I don't know what the heck went wrong, but the PDF export was complete gibberish. By that, I mean a jumble of text-like characters like I've never seen before. I thought it was maybe something borked in that particular note, but I switched to another one, and the export there was also gibberish. And my solution was I just brought the note up in Joplin on my iPad and kept it in front of me while I presented from my second user account on the Mac. Being a good net citizen, though, I went off to the Joplin forums to report the bug. There I discovered that bug reporting is not done in the forums. You do that by creating an issue in the GitHub project. Luckily, because of programming by stealth, I'm very good at opening issues in GitHub. But I have to say, man, they made it a lot harder than I would have hoped. 
I assumed I'd have to do a write-up describing the problem and identifying the OS and Joplin version and throw in a screenshot as an attachment and I'd be done. But they asked for some significantly nerdier stuff. They wanted a debug log, which isn't all that uncommon, but to get the debug log, you had to create a text file in a very deep directory on your system, paste in some glop I didn't understand, and restart the app. This uh, Having that file exist caused the JavaScript console to appear as yet another column in my, in my installation on the Mac, which was actually kind of cool, but I had to watch for errors or warnings and copy that text to a text file to send to them. I mean, it wasn't that hard, but I can't imagine a normal human who just wants to write notes doing this much work to report a bug. After I got all that done and I finished my presentation in the other account, I went back to my main account and guess what? PDF export worked flawlessly. There was nothing wrong with it. So I went back to the GitHub issue and I told them and I moved on and I have no clue why it happened or what fixed it. I was happy, though, to see the lead developer had responded and said she also thought that was pretty curious and didn't understand quite why it would have happened, uh, and to let them know if it ever happened again and try to capture some more information about it. So uh, they were very responsive, which I thought was great, And um, uh, but I don't know why it happened because it works just fine now. There's nothing wrong with it. So the bottom line is I've not been an Evernote user for a very long time, so I'm not the perfect person to judge whether Joplin is the replacement you might be looking for. But I can tell you that it's incredibly powerful. It's in very active open source development. So if it doesn't do exactly what you want yet, you can influence that development. It's also cross-platform and it's free. Did I mention it's very, very pretty? You can find Joplin at joplinapp.org. I often mention that the greatest thing about being a Patreon supporter of the podcast is that you're 100% in charge of how much you pledge and how you pledge. At any time, you can reduce your pledge, but you know what else you can do? You can also increase your pledge if you feel so inspired. Jonathan Weinman has been a contributor via Patreon literally for years, and just this week, he decided to become a contributor at an even higher level. This warms my heart, not because not only does it mean he's getting his money's worth, he feels the value has increased, or maybe his ability to donate has increased. In any case, I think Jonathan is a peach. If you'd like to be a peach too, please consider going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and choosing a dollar amount to contribute that reflects the value you think you get out of the show. Hi everyone, this is Jill from the North Woods. As you may know, I use Windows. I like Windows. And there's always interesting conundrums involved when saving some of your data into Apple applications and other pieces of your data that's not in Apple. For example, I have this very nice password list of all the things I use on my phone. It has all the passwords I like to use for various apps and websites I go to. And it's all there in the Apple iCloud keychain. Problem is, is that it only works for half my life. What about the times when I'm in Windows? How can I actually get those passwords there? Well, now Apple has a solution for people like me. They have an application for iCloud passwords. And what it gives you is this chance to use the passwords that you have from your Apple devices and add more that are on your Windows machine. That way you can have one system in place that'll help you manage your passwords. To talk about the installations, it's pretty straightforward. First of all, you must have a few things. You must have iCloud for Windows application on your Windows machine. That's a requirement for the whole process. You must use a Chrome extension. And the Chrome extension requires, obviously, to have Chrome installed on your machine. And once that's installed, then you can use 
Microsoft Edge browser instead of Chrome with that same Chrome extension. And you can get the extension from the Windows Store. I noticed from the reviews there were a lot of harsh critics of the extension, saying that it wasn't working, saying that they didn't understand how it worked. For the most part, it seemed to me that people didn't understand how it could work. They either didn't have the iCloud application installed, or they were trying to use a browser that was unsupported. Now that I installed the iCloud password for Windows application, I had all the pieces together. I had the iCloud application, I had Chrome, I had the Chrome extension, and I had the iCloud passwords for Windows installed. Initially, I had to sign into the applications with my Apple ID, which is fine. I had that available. Then I noticed inside my iCloud for Windows application, it now had a box checked that indicated that passwords were part of the integration with iCloud. Now came from the extension part. I opened up Chrome and browsed to a few websites that I know is in my list of iCloud passwords. And from there, I noticed that I could click on a cloud icon. It turned blue when there was a password available for that particular website, or it's grayed out if there is no password for the website. Initially, when you first use iCloud password for Windows, it does ask you for each first session to enter a PIN. The PIN shows up in the lower right-hand corner of the browser. From there, you can enter it into the extension and start to use that password for the website you're trying to log into. It will allow you to look up passwords from the extension until it times out. And then you get a new PIN and you have to enter it again. Then the application asked me to select which saved password for this website did I want to use. In these cases, I only had one password for the website. And as soon as I clicked on it, it added the username and password to the login. Pretty easy. Worked nicely. I also did the same kind of testing with Edge, and it worked just fine, and in exactly the same way. I even joined a brand new service to see how it would save that password, and it did it like a champ. I added in the new login and the new password, and it asked me if I wanted to save those entries. When I did, I checked the iCloud application, and sure enough, that new user login and password were there. I looked at my Apple apps, and they were there as well. So the universal function is great. Now I have those passwords in all the places. I tested it further by going into an application I had by changing a password for a website I used. And sure enough, asked me if I wanted to update my password in the iCloud password application. It updated it, and then I checked, and it updated it everywhere. Great. And looking in the iCloud password app, it's very simple. It has logins, passwords, and websites. There's not a lot of other features that are there, which is expected because there's just not a lot of extra features inside the keychain in general. So it did exactly what I needed it to do. Transfer my usernames and passwords over to a place I could use them on my Windows machine and then take all the updates I do on my Windows machine and send them back to iCloud so that they're available on my Mac mini and all my iOS devices. Exactly what I needed. And so thinking about the whole process, I think that it's really useful. First of all, it has end-to-end -end encryption, just like we would expect it to have for Apple. And the biggest advantage of it is it's free. So getting a secure, free password management system is pretty nice and pretty useful to people. And looking at it compared to 1Password, which is the other application that I use to capture my passwords, it has less features, of course. 1Password can do many, many different things. It has more features for storing documents and other types of identification. 
and notes and comments and warnings about hacking and warnings about passwords that may have been compromised or seem a bit too easy. That's really nice. Also, these other password applications can help you create a complex password, one that's sufficient for your security. This one just asks you what it is. So there are other things out there that certainly can help you, like Bart's application to create a password, but it will not do this for you. So in conclusion, it's a perfectly great application for getting your iOS and Mac passwords over to Windows where you can use them there. It gives you an opportunity to get passwords that you use on Windows over to your iCloud, which is nice too. And it's free and secure. So while I don't think I'm going to be replacing 1Password soon, I can see a real use for this type of application, either as a supplement to 1Password or for someone who doesn't want to pay for a password application. The iCloud password application for Windows and the iCloud Windows application can both be downloaded from Apple for free. So this is Jill from the Northwoods. Thanks for listening and let us know what you think about the iCloud password for Windows application. Well, thanks, Jill, especially for accepting this special assignment. Uh, as expected, you did a fantastic job explaining it. Um, one of the things I thought about when I first heard Jill's uh, review was she neglected to say iCloud Keychain, and I thought she just didn't know what the proper name was for it, maybe, or something, because she's new to the Mac or whatever. But it, it's she's not making any mistakes there. It is called iCloud Passwords for Windows because there is no Keychain application on Windows. So that's why it's called that. So anyway, as always, flawless, and uh, really appreciate having that little peek into how it works for Windows users. So thanks a lot for that. I really, really appreciate it. I am not one of those highly organized, getting things done people with omni-focused tasks and due dates that I actually achieve. I use a hodgepodge of techniques that seem to revolve around my email. I know that makes many of you cringe, but I've got a cool trick that's starting to help me connect relevant emails to my tasks. Let's start with a pretty simple example. We all order a lot of stuff online these days. I don't know about you, but I find myself losing track of what I've ordered, when I've ordered it, where I ordered it from, and when I was supposed to get it, and forget all about even knowing my order number. About a year ago, I started a to-do list that I call Ordered Items, and I did it in Microsoft To-Do. That's the love child of Wonderlist. When I order something, I, created, I create a new item in To-Do, and every item in To-Do can have steps within it, reminders, due dates, file attachments, and freeform notes. So let's say I order some IKEA shelves. I create an item in to-do, and then I go to the email confirmation and I copy the information out of it, like the order number and delivery date, so if it never shows up, I can check in on it. Often I need more detail from the email at a later date, and I'd have to hunt through my 70,852 saved emails to find it. It's not an exaggeration, that was an exact number. Anyway, I found a better solution for this, and it's pretty nerdy, which makes me like it even better. It's called deep linking. I don't remember how I discovered the concept, but I learned the super nerdy details about deep linking from a blog post at n, let's see, nshipster.com. I was going to say nshipter.com, but I think it's probably nshipster.com. Anyway, the main thing you need to know is that every email message you receive has a unique message ID associated with it. Given that unique message ID and a bit of formatting, we can create a link to plop in anywhere that, when clicked, will launch the email in Mail.app. The first thing we need to do is tell Mail that we want to be able to see the message ID header when viewing our emails. We only have to do this once. 
To reveal the message IDs on your emails, open up Mails Preferences and select the Viewing tab. You'll find an option to show message headers with a dropdown next to it, which probably says Default. Instead, select Custom from the dropdown, and then in the little window that comes up, tap the plus button and then type Message-ID in all capital letters. The ID is capital letters. And then you select OK and close your mail preferences. Now, when you look at all of your email messages, along with who they're from, the subject, and who the message was to, you'll also see a long, gloppy-looking message ID. The format of the message ID is interesting. It's enclosed in angle brackets, and it starts with a lot of numerical digits separated by dots. Then it's got an at symbol in the middle, and it ends with the domain that sent it. In my example, I ordered something from Ikea. It was at ikea.com was at the end of this, uh, this long gloppy message ID. This unique identifier is what we'll be using to link to an email. Luckily, we don't have to understand very much about it at all. While this message ID has the information we need, in order to actually use this crazy looking message ID, we need to reformat it a bit just to make it a deep link. So you know how web URLs start with HTTPS colon slash slash? Well, the format of a deep link has to start with message colon slash slash. All right, so far, not too scary. The next part's a little weirder. Certain symbols can't be understood by computers, so we have what are called ASCII codes for non-printable characters. Now, the reason I bring up this arcane topic is that we need to replace the angle brackets in our message ID with the ASCII codes for them to be able to be recognized in the deep link. The left angle bracket, the one that looks like a less than symbol, will be replaced with %3C, and the right angle bracket looks like a greater than symbol. That's going to be replaced with %3E. So now our final format for the deep link is message colon slash slash %3C then that long glop, and then it ends with percent %3E. <laughs> I got to wonder how many people stopped listening right when I got to the ASCII code for non-printable characters part. Anyway, if you're still with me, hang in there because you're not going to have to do any of this by hand. I played with this a bit and I realized I was never going to remember the ASCII codes and the formatting of message colon slash slash. So I turned to one of my favorite tools for help, Text Expander. Text Expander at its most basic will spit out a snippet of text when you type the abbreviation you assigned for it, but it can do a lot more than that. One of the things it can do is embed your clipboard in the snippet that it spits out, and we're going to use that feature to create our deep link automatically. In Text Expander, I simply typed in message colon slash slash percent 3C. That takes care of the front part. Then I clicked the little keyboard symbol that brings up keyboard macros, and I selected the clipboard and I followed that with %3E. Now, I may managed to make that sound super complicated, but it took maybe 30 seconds to accomplish, maybe 15. I chose the letters MSG semicolon to trigger my snippet of text, and I was ready to go. All of the heavy lifting is over now. To use my fancy new text expander snippet to deep link to an email, the process is simple. In the email to which I want to link, I copy the message ID without the angle brackets. I switch to wherever I need to put the deep link. In my example, this would be my to-do list. I type my abbreviation and the deep link splats out onto the open text field. It's ugly as sin, as my father would say, but it's a real link. And when I click it, mail launches directly to the order email from Ikea. Mission accomplished, and all I need to remember is my text expander abbreviation. Now, remember, this whole thing doesn't have anything to do with Microsoft To-Do. That's just one of the places I use it. I got an email from someone telling me they wanted to meet and included a lot of important information in the email. 
I copied the message ID from the email, and then I used my text expander abbreviation to paste it as a deep link into a calendar event. Unlike to do, when you do this in Apple's calendar app, it converts that gloppy message colon slash slash stuff into show in mail dot 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 which looks great and is much less confusing. So the link is just show in mail. You click that, boom, you've got the, the email comes up. Well, now that I had that working, I was finding a lot of places where it's handy to drop in a link to an email so I can connect information together and not have to go hunting for it later. I use this trick often, but not quite often enough to remember whether or not I'm supposed to copy the angle brackets. I'm not sure why this works, but if you do copy the angle brackets, they just get ignored and the deep link still works. Now, at least some of you are yelling into your devices that I could have used Keyboard Maestro for this instead of Text Expander, and you'd be absolutely correct. I'm not as good at Keyboard Maestro yet as I am with Text Expander, but I eventually got it to work. Remember, we start with the message ID copied into the clipboard. So the steps I put into Keyboard Maestro are set variable message ID to the system clipboard, Prepend the variable message ID with message colon slash slash percent 3C, append the variable message ID with percent 3E, and then set the system clipboard to the variable uh, message ID, and then paste. That sounds complicated, but it's really just a couple of steps. Now, just to keep it as much like the text expander snippet as possible, I set the keyboard maestro trigger to be a text string, and in this case, I chose mid semicolon. Forget why it was mid. Oh, message ID. That's what it was for. Mid semicolon. So Keyboard Maestro doesn't work quite the same as Text Expander. After I typed the trigger and it pasted in my newly formed deep link, the trigger text string was still there in my way. Luckily, Keyboard Maestro was offering automatically to simulate deleting the characters of the trigger before executing, which made my macro work perfectly. Now I can select the message ID for mail, type my text string, and the deep link is pasted wherever I want it. Now, I bet there's a more elegant way to write the macro in Keyboard Maestro, and I'm sure Mike Price will write an improved version when he hears how I did it. It'll be awesome and filled with funny comments, too. But you know what? My method does work, so I'm happy. I'm sure at least 90% of you think I'm nuts that this is a time saver, and it's too nerdy for you. But I use it pretty often, and I love the efficiency of it. Now that I've spoon-fed it to you with screenshots using two different tools, why not give it a try? The worst thing that can happen is that you love it. By the way, after I finished this, uh, I sent out the blog post about this. Mike Price did create another way to do it, and he posted that in our Slack. And also, Tim McCoy has been doing some work and posting on the blog post in the comments. He has written out all of his code. He did it in um, AppleScript and put it inside Automator, and he gave all of his code to all of you if you'd like to go get it there. So now you have three or four different ways to do it, and I think it's really cool. So you should try it. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments and suggestions, and maybe, hey, even your solution to the deep link problem. And you can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Do you want to be a peach like Jonathan? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you'd rather do a one-time donation, you could do it at podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join the fun of the conversation, like Mike Price did in working on this uh, deep link thing over in Slack, you can go to podfeet.com slash Slack. If you prefer, prefer Facebook, we have a Facebook group as well at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. 
and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.